Matthew chapter 4. We continue to work into Matthew's narrative, and it has been a blessing for sure. Uh, if you're just joining us today, we are, we are getting into uh, Matthew's gospel. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we will go all the way to the end of chapter 28, and it will be a glorious picture. Uh, and we are trying to follow Matthew's narrative. So uh, the title of the sermon, if you are taking notes, is The Restoration Begins. The Restoration Begins. Uh, I'm excited about today. It's Lord's Supper Sunday, which is always a sweet time. It's also the first Sunday of June, and so we'll get to have our picnics, as we mentioned earlier, to spend time together. It's going to be a worshipful and tiring day. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a day when we are no longer wearied by worship? A day when our bodies can meet our, our spiritual desires for God. Right now, we can't. That's why you need a Sunday afternoon nap. But a day is coming, beloved. A day is coming when we will not be wearied by our worship. But we will, that's right, come Lord Jesus. But we will worship, we will run and not grow weary. But today, we will worship and be wearied for the glory of God. Amen? Disney, Walt Disney has mastered a theme in their movies. They have mastered the retelling of this theme in various ways so that they can show the different facets and shades of its beauty. This theme, whether it be uh, Frozen's Curse and the Infinite Winter, or whether it be Moana's Heart of Tafiti and the failing crops and the uh, the ocean being drained of its fish, so to speak, or the most recent Raya or Raya and the dragon and the last dragon and the curse that comes from the disunity of the human race. Uh, whatever it is, they have mastered the theme of curse and restoration, of curse and restoration. And they adapt it in these different stories with creative ways, but ultimately to see all the beauty of what that brings. And they're actually taking and borrowing from a very old story, aren't they? They are borrowing from the archetype story, the first story, so to speak. That is the story that is unfolding before us in Matthew's Gospel. Today we get a small glimpse, the unfolding of the breaking of that curse that began all the way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, and today we are seeing it broken more and more in all of its full detail, and it will come into greater, greater glory as Matthew's narrative progressive. But let's get some context before we get into it. Let me, if you're just joining us, we are coming on the heels of the famous temptation of Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness, 40 days fasting, and he does mortal combat with Satan. And it ends, that climactic temptation shows uh, Jesus on a very high mountain, and Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world and its glory. If only you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Jesus would not forsake the Father's crown. Jesus would not take a crown without a cross. And that was the height of that temptation. You can have the crown without the cross. 
And, and yet, Jesus says, no, I'm going to trust the Father's plan. I will go to the cross. And so Jesus resists the second fall, shows himself as the obedient Son of God, the true Son, the second Adam, who gives life to all who follow him. That's where we kind of ended last week. Now, in contrast to compromising the kingdom of God, as Satan was trying to get him to do, Jesus, in today's passage, is going to start preaching the kingdom of God and showing its power and stunning display. And so let's pray and get at it. Father in heaven, we all entered here feeling some of us in our very bones, but all of us in our souls, the devastation of sin. This world is impacted by the curse that we see in thorns and thistles and droughts and in death. This world has impacted the land. We as people, your creation, are impacted as we feel the sting of death, as we feel the stain of sin and its ugliness in how we respond to one another. We feel it in injustice. We feel it in betrayal. We feel it in deceit. We feel it in greed. We feel the curse in many ways. We feel it in the frailty of our bodies. But Father, would you hold out this great hope for us today that a kingdom has come in Christ and the curse is broken. And may that fill our hearts with joy. May that drive us to radical reorientation of life here this morning. May sinners see there is a Savior who is mighty to save. And Father, I do want to pray for the island of Molokai. I pray for Kanakakai Baptist Church and many other gospel preachers, for Hanale Lindo and his family. I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word from the churches in Molokai. I pray that where there is darkness, that light would shine. I pray that many would see Jesus as a faithful king who pours out his life, his power for the good of his people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this in Molokai, in our neighboring island. We ask that you would do this in Kyrgyzstan, thousands of miles away, in a country that is massive and under the shadow of death. Would you bless those who are ministering faithfully among Muslims in that region? Give them encouragement. Give them strength to press on. May they not flee or cave under persecution, but may they thrive and press in. Give them the wisdom they need even now. And Father, we pray this not only here, but all around the globe where the gospel is preached. May the kingdom of heaven be proclaimed, and may sinners be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here's your big idea. The proclamation of the kingdom is revealed for all peoples. The proclamation of the kingdom is revealed for all peoples and reorients all priorities. It's revealed for all peoples, and it reorients all priorities. That's your big idea this morning. Number one, the kingdom message. We're going to see the kingdom message number one. 
Now, as we said, in comparison to the well-known, to the often-studied temptations of Jesus, today's passage is a lesser-known passage of Scripture. It's, it's almost seen as a transitional interlude before you get to the famous Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapter 5-7. through seven. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, famous portion of Scripture. We'll spend a decent chunk of time there in the Sermon on the Mount. But today's passage is often seen as an interlude or a, a little intermediator, uh, intermediary passage, so to speak. If we stop if you were to be reading in your Bible throughout maybe preparing for this week or throughout your devotions, you would probably skip this portion of Scripture, right? To be honest, you'd probably, I don't mean skip it, you'd read it, but if you had to choose to meditate, you're probably going to look at Matthew's uh, temptations of Jesus, or you'll go on to, uh, to Matthew 5, to the Sermon on the Mount. Normally, if we read these verses at all, we tend to isolate them in their component parts. So you might come to the first section and be like, ooh, this is a, some prophecy in Isaiah that I'm, I'm not entirely sure about. But look, there's Jesus preaching the gospel. Cool. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now we come to his calling of his disciples. Oh, yeah, I love this passage. I'll make you fishers of men. That's such a cool passage. I love that passage. And, and then maybe you'll go on into this healing portion, and oh, I don't know much about these cities and the Decapolis, and, and then we kind of move on to Matthew chapter 5, right? That's typically maybe how we would interact with these passages in our devotions. But what I want to do <clears throat> this morning, by the grace of God, thank you, Parker. I don't know why my, you're very perceptive, uh, my throat's messing up. <clears> throat> But we don't typically give uh, thought to what's unfolding here. We don't pause long enough. But what I want to do is I want us to see this section from verse 12 to verse 25, even linked with 4, 1 through 11, as a single whole. Together, different pieces that make a portrait that Matthew's trying to drive home for us that we need to see. Uh, and so we won't get to get all, maybe all the little, we won't spend as much time maybe on the calling of the disciples as we might like to, but, but I want you to see this big picture that sometimes we miss when we just kind of zoom in on one portion to miss the others. So we read in verse 11 first that the devil uh, uh, left Jesus, right? He left Jesus, be gone, Satan. And then verse 12 says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So Jesus hears, so temptation ends, wilderness ends, Satan leaves, angels are ministering to Jesus, and then now it says he hears John the Baptist has been arrested, right? He's been arrested, and now Jesus withdraws into Galilee. What we need to understand is there's about a one to two year gap in time from the temptation ending in the wilderness to John the Baptist getting arrested. There's a, a time warp here, another one in the story. Matthew leaves out a whole bunch of things that happen in the ministry of Jesus. How do we know that? The other gospel writers, Luke, Mark, John, include some of what Jesus did. Matthew doesn't include some of those details for a reason, and it's very important to what Matthew is trying to say. So we have to ask, remember I told you, one of the ways to read Matthew and the different Gospels, uh, sometimes we look at, and we, we, we take all their accounts, their witnesses, and we try to put a big picture together to see what happened. That's not wrong. That's actually, that can be good and helpful. But we, we need to see what Matthew's trying to say. And so what, what we want to do is see, what did these guys say, and then what did Matthew leave out, and why? You see? I want to see, why didn't he say 
what they said. And that's what I want to ask this morning. So why did Matthew leave those details out and transition with this time warp? Straight from wilderness to John getting arrested. Here's my answer that I would propose for your consideration. Here's the implication. The implication that Matthew's showing us is that Satan left Jesus, be gone Satan, and he turns his demonic, diabolical attention to the people of God, to God's prophet. And how Jesus responds to that drives forward Matthew's message that the Messiah has come in power and a new age has dawned where Satan's power is vastly limited in comparison to the gospel of Christ. That is key to Matthew. This is what we see in Revelation, isn't it? Revelation 12, 17, you remember that dragon, once defeated, unable to destroy the Christ child, now turns his rage, his murderous attention to the rest of the followers of God, to the rest of the people of God. And now we see Satan turn his attention from Jesus to John the Baptist. And this is a foreshadowing of the animosity that would reign upon the church after the ascension of Christ and still reigns upon the church to this day across the world in various forms. Beloved, Satan is a ruthless enemy. He was unable to get Jesus to compromise his obedience and his worship of God. Satan, being a bitter enemy, now turns his attention to the object of God's love to his people. This is not accidental. Beloved, just think with me for a moment. If Satan can't get you to bow the knee directly to him, then he has many tactics that are designed to distract you from God's mission. If he can't get you with a full frontal attack, he'll come around and try to distract you. And watching those you love suffer can be a mighty distraction. Watching those you love suffer can prove a very potent distraction. Or it can drive you to God's work. It can distract you or it can drive you. It can cause you to press on that gas. And so persecution breaks out. We know exactly why John was arrested because the other gospel writers tell us why he was arrested because he was a preacher of righteousness. And he called the king to repent of his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And if you're going to call a king or somebody in power to repent, you better be ready for what happens next. John's stand for truth would cost him his head, but that's not Matthew's point in our text today. We're not there yet, but we know why he was arrested. And so Jesus hears of John's arrest, and he withdraws into Galilee. In this case, he goes where Herod has no jurisdiction. Herod has no legal jurisdiction in Galilee, and so Jesus leaves there. The text says, it goes on, it says he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now, Capernaum is about 20 miles away from Nazareth. So Jesus was in Nazareth. That's where he grew up. That's his hometown. And then he goes and he lives in Capernaum by the sea, all right? So 20 miles away. So that'd be about the distance from Kahului to Lahaina. Super far, right? We don't ever go 
to Lahaina. Imagine if you had to walk to Lahaina. Would you ever go to Lahaina and go over the pulley? No way. Not me. I've gone on that hike, and it's hard, right? That's a far, it's a pretty good distance. It's a good trek away, 20 miles in the ancient world, and today to walk is far. Yet, even this action of Jesus to go to Capernaum under the leading of the Holy Spirit is no accident. Matthew sees this as a direct fulfillment of Scripture. And the Scripture that he sees fulfilled comes from Isaiah 9. Now, here's why this is important. Isaiah 9, so this starts with a geographic change of location. When you're reading your Bible, that's a clue to a new section beginning. It's a geographic change of location. Matthew 4.25 ends with more geographic details. Those two sections, these sections, frame like bookends this section for us. That's how we kind of know this is meant to go together. All of these accounts are showing us a singular point that Matthew's driving home. Namely, that this kingdom of God is for all peoples. The kingdom of heaven is not for Jews only, but it is for Gentiles beyond the sea, far into the region of Galilee, under the shadow of death. This region, this is a message for all peoples, because Jesus will be a king of all nations. The prophecy from Isaiah 9 says that these people living here in the, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the Gentiles, that they would see a great light, that this region that has been under the bleak shadow of death for so long now experiences for the first time in centuries the true dawning of light with the arrival of Jesus. Now, this prophecy uh, is, uh, we want to see Matthew saw it as important, so we got to think about it a little bit. Uh, This prophecy about Zebulun and Naphtali, we're like, oh, who are these guys again? I I don't know who Zebulun is. I don't even know how to say that name, right? I'm probably butchering it, right? Uh, These are important. It helps to know a little bit of geography to know what Matthew's getting at here and why he sees it as a fulfillment. Now, uh, the tribal allotments of Zebulun and Naphtali were located in the northern parts of Israel, right? So you got the nation of Israel. These constitute the northern borders. There's Zebulun, they're landlocked, and then Naphtali, they're a little bit further north. They are the northern borders. Now, that's all good, except when conquering foreign enemy powers would come against Israel, the first places they would march on would often be the borders. Naphtali and Zebulun. There was a desert to the east, the Arabian desert. Nobody wants to cross the desert. They would come around and come down north or they would come up the south, depending on which enemy it was. And the enemies that laid waste to these territories were Assyria and Babylon. We just read about them in the book of Daniel. Babylon would come against these territories and just wreak havoc and carnage, slaughtering men and women and children, plucking out the eyes of the sons of Israel. And so it was said they felt like the Lord had brought contempt on them, shame on them. They had been routed by the peoples, and they felt as if God had not heard their cries. They felt God, we've been serving you. We're part of the people of Israel. We have the covenant promises, and we are getting routed. They see their sons carried off into captivity, their daughters, 
the ones who aren't murdered. And so, they would see just massive destruction. Subsequently, there would also be heavy non-Jewish influence, Gentile influence in these regions. Uh, Gentiles would come and settle in these borderlands as they would encroach on the territories of Israel. And so they often felt like they were in gloom, in anguish, that their names were held in derision, like God, their covenant God, had forsaken them. Have you ever been there? You ever felt like that in your life? Pain, wave upon wave of trial. I'm trying to follow you, God. Trying to be obedient. I can't seem to catch a break. That's the way they felt. Zebulun and Naphtali and those who lived there, they could resonate with that feeling. But often, like us, they overlooked their own sin. They were blind to their own sin and the role it played in bringing judgment. They had actually forsaken God. They had been mingling and breaking His covenant. They forgot about their own idolatry. They had taken refuge in the wisdom of men and in worldly wisdom rather than seeking God's faithfulness and His wisdom through their covenant that they had. And so their sin blinded them to seeing the judgment that they faced initially. But God is patient, isn't He? God is merciful. And in Isaiah 9, God promises that though they were often the first to experience his judgment, they would also be the first to see his light. They would have light dawn on them first. Just as foreign powers, the inbreaking of a foreign kingdom would hit them first and hardest, so the kingdom of heaven would break in and shine on them brightly. And Jesus did many miracles in Capernaum and in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so it did. On them a light has shone, Matthew says. On them the dawn had shone. And so, how does Matthew, uh, how does he interpret this dawning of light? This is really fascinating. Verse 17 tells us exactly how these people saw light. Verse 17, they hear the Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. That's light. That's light. So far from thwarting the message of John the Baptist, far from Satan thwarting or hindering it, Jesus actually picks up that baton where John left it and runs with it. And now the ministry of proclamation of the good news of the kingdom thunders across Galilee. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is so instructive for us. Have you ever really thought of Jesus as a preacher? Right? We know him as a as a Savior, the shepherd, always dealing with his disciples, calming the sea, but he's a preacher. He's a herald greater than Billy Graham, greater than any other pastor you listen to on a podcast. Jesus was a preacher, a herald of the gospel of God. And we're about to hear his sermon on a mountain in a little while, and it's going to, I can guarantee you this, it's going to shock you. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. That'll be shocking. Guarantee. He's a preacher, and we're going to hear his sermon soon. But beloved, hear this. When you call sinners to repent, 
When you call sinners to repent, not in generalities, John was very specific. Jesus was very specific. When you call sinners to repent of specific sins, light is dawning. That is light shining. And they may squirm and feel uncomfortable. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to make people squirm and feel uncomfortable. That's just the result, the inevitable result of darkness and light meeting. And that discomfort may be the the tool, the mechanism the Holy Spirit of God uses to bestow light, not just outside of them, but in their very hearts. So many times Christians think, if I call somebody to repent, they they might go deeper into darkness. That's not our responsibility. You are a herald of light. Be that. Be that. Be a preacher to those around you. And so, light is dawning in this region. There are massive missional implications. This is a, a type of foreshadowing of what will come at the very end of the book. But we, we are a missional people. We don't want just to be the only ones who have this light. We want to take that light everywhere. We want our children. We want our cousins. We want our parents. We want all to know this light. We want people on Molokai to see this light. In Lanai, we want it to be thundered from Haleakala. We want all peoples to hear this light has come and is available to all. And it is worth going at great cost to yourself. It is worth going at great cost to your family so that others may hear it. We have to, or they won't. We have to. Number two, so that's the kingdom message. Number two, here's the kingdom call. I love this passage. I wanted to spend so much time here, but we just, we just can't. The calling of the first disciples. We see the king now calls his servants. The, the call to discipleship, follow me. Now, this is a famous account, right? Jesus comes and he calls these fishermen, Andrew, Simon, James, John, and he says, uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Don't we just love that? That's just a cool, like you could just sermonize that thing. That's just right there for you to preach. I want to note a few points that are often missed. First, uh, this is one of the accounts that we have. uh, Every gospel actually records a little bit different account of how the first disciples are called. Uh, So it's worth just to note, if you were to do a side-by-side, it plays out a little bit differently, and that makes some people be like, wait, is there a contradiction in the Bible. Is this a contradiction of how this plays out? Uh, there, there really isn't. If you were to ask me uh, what I did this weekend, uh, I might say, what did I do this weekend? Oh man, I don't know. What did I do? What did we do yesterday? We did something, right? Um, I washed the cars, hung out with some people. Uh, my wife did some work and hung out with the kids. If you were to ask her what we did this weekend, you'd probably get a little bit different of an answer, right? She, she'd probably highlight different things that were important to her. She might say, uh, I did some work, hung out with the kids, we did some stuff, and leave out the fact that I did this whole thing with a car for a while. You see? Is that a contradiction? No, she's just sharing things that are important to her. This is something that you'll see as you look at these accounts. And so first, it's likely notable that this isn't the first time Andrew and Peter have met Jesus. We know that from the other gospel writers. They have encountered Jesus before. They have met him. They've spoken to him. They've seen some of his works. They've, they've done all of these things. He is no stranger to them. But it doesn't take away from the stunning nature of what happens next when he says, follow me. 
They leave their mending of nets. They leave their father's boat, their family business. They leave all of that, and they follow Jesus. That's stunning. That's stunning. We also see it's a command. Oftentimes we hear this as an invitation. Follow me if you want to. If not, it's all good. No. Jesus actually issued them an order. Follow me. Every now and then I'll ask my children to do something, and I'll give them an order, and they'll say, no, oh, my mistake. I wasn't asking, oh. <laughs> and I won't ask again. And they know, they know what that means. Jesus wasn't asking. He was commanding, follow me. And so they left everything and followed him. Time doesn't permit me to get into this portion. I'll, I'll give it to you uh, for those of you to do your own research. Jeremiah 16, 16. Jeremiah 16, uh, you can start in verse 14 and go on ahead. You'll see uh, Jesus, this whole, uh, he's not just being creative with the culture. He's not just like, hey, uh, oh, if they were, uh, I don't know, maybe if they were doing hula, he might not say, hey, uh, you know, stop your hula and I'll make you a, a, a dancer for the glory of God. He, he's not doing that kind of, hey, come play baseball for the glory of God. Come play basketball for the glory of God. Come play, uh, I'll, I'll make you a kicker of men, you know, soccer, right? He, he's not doing that. He's not just contextualizing the gospel call. Uh, he's actually hearkening back to an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Jeremiah, from the promise of restoration, where God says, a day is coming when I will send forth fishermen, and they will gather my people. And I will send forth hunters to hunt them on the mountains, and they will gather my people. It is a promise of restoration. And so when Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus is saying the restoration is coming. The day Jeremiah foresaw is here. Now is time. Fish for men. It's a beautiful call, a beautiful picture. Now, beloved, this is essentially the call to follow me is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If you're here and you're wondering what is Christianity all about, essentially it is this. We are Christ followers. That's what a disciple is. It is a Christ follower. In this day where they are living, there would be rabbis. They would be like teachers. And they would have followers, the sort of what Jesus is calling the, these disciples to do. And their disciples would literally follow them around and do life with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They would learn how they ate how they wash their hands, how they, their daily schedules, what they did, how they spoke and interacted with people, how they handled conflict, how they, they would just learn all of these things. There's even accounts to, that uh, medicinally, uh, how they sneezed, how they, how they coughed, how they did all these things. They, they would emulate their rabbi. The reason for this is because they understood something that we often miss that truth impacts all of life. What you believe impacts how you behave. Not just one day a week, not just in the big things of life, but in every facet of your life. What you believe impacts how you behave. And in this way, they were learners. They wanted to learn Christ. The call to follow me is learn me. 
be like me, be transformed by me. And so it was an invitation to learn for them. It is an invitation to learn for us. So think about this. They left everything. They left their father's business. They forsook familiar family rhythms of life to follow and learn Jesus. They spent time together doing big things like feeding 5,000 people. And they spent a whole lot of time together doing little things, like, what are we going to eat for dinner tonight? I don't know. It's your turn to cook. No, I cooked last night. No, you did. No, I. <laughs> they had a whole bunch of time to do little things and argue, and we see the disciples doing this regularly. They did all of this so that they could learn Christ. KBC, I hope you don't think that our Sunday morning picnics our midweek gatherings, our Sunday school hours. I hope you don't think they're just to hang out and have fun. I hope you don't think that. They are meant so that we would together learn Christ. They are meant so that we together would, in big things and in small things, that we would learn Christ together. That you would learn him through instruction that you would learn him through laughter, that you would learn him through tears, that you would learn him through work, that you would learn him through sin and forgiveness, that you would learn him through pain and healing, that through everything you would learn Christ and follow him, that you would have a God-centered view of your entire life. And that's what's happening here with the king's call to follow me. In order to do this, it demands a reorientation of their life's priorities. Your life's priorities must be reoriented. They couldn't just half-hearted follow Jesus. Jesus, can I follow you? I, I got to do this stuff with my dad. But in the, in the pukas of my schedule, can I follow you there? Or... Jesus, I'm just going to wrap this, this project up, these nets. i got to finish this, and, and then I'm going to come follow you. They couldn't serve him half-hearted. It demanded total allegiance. And so it is for us. It demands a reorientation of our lives' priorities. Beloved, make no mistake. Whatever God has for you in your life, obedience to him looks like reorienting everything for his glory and his purpose. If your Christianity is an add-on thing that you do, or if it's an extra thing that you do, it will be a failing Christianity. It will not transform you as it was designed. Christianity is central to who you are. The, the call of Christ is central to everything we do and drives it. And so it demands our priorities to be reoriented. It demands our focus to be reoriented and recalibrated and informed by the king. One of the things this last year has revealed and, and is revealing still is that for many, we don't know what the king's priorities are. Think about that. For many, we do not know truly what the king's 
priorities are. We think, in different little pockets in here even, we think our priorities are the king's priorities. And we really, if we're honest, don't want to hear others tell us otherwise. Beloved, hear me today. The call of discipleship is a call to learn Christ and to gather with him as much as possible, even when you feel like your comfort of life is on the line. It's a call to gather with him, even when you feel uncomfortable. Now, you might ask, oh, I would, I would love to gather with Jesus like this. How do we do that today? Because Jesus isn't here. He's not right here for me to follow. How do we gather with him today? It's quite simple, and some of you will not like it, or you won't like the implications of it. You might affirm the truthfulness of it, but you will not like and practice the implications of it. How do we do this today? Get this, quite simple. We gather with his body. The church is not this building. It's what? the people, and the people are the body of Christ. Paul is very clear on that. If you want to gather with Christ today, there's a few ways you do that personally, privately, in your daily devotions. That's very important, but it's not complete. You gather with his people as much as possible, as much as you can. You are intentional about including other believers into your life rhythms, into your flow, into, your, into everything you do. You gather with his body if you're watching online, and welcome back, those of you who are back, awesome. But if you're, if you're watching online still, I want to urge you as, as lovingly as I can, but with all the authority of Christ that I can, and with the full weight of Holy Scripture, it is time to come back. It's time to come back. It's time to come back, to gather with the body again. There are many reasons, which I will not get into now. I trust you know them all. But at some point, our excuses to not gather are just what? They're excuses. They're not going to hold weight. We ought not to disobey the clear command of God to gather with his people for things that maybe aren't clear or commands of men or worries of men. It's time to come back. A day will come when the internet feed cuts and it stopped. I hope you will gather with us long before that day comes, but it is coming. It's time to come back. It's also time for all of us to reorient your priorities. There's many ways this happens for those of us in here. He commands you to reorient your time. Ask yourself this, is, how do I spend my time? How, how is your daily schedule? Does it reflect the king's priorities in your life? How about your relationships? Do my relationships with my spouse, with my children, with my friends, with my significant other, do my relationships reflect Christ's will and priorities? Your money. How do I spend the money that God has entrusted to me to reflect God's priorities? Your words. Oh, the Proverbs have much to say about our words, don't they? There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Your words, do they reflect God's values and God's priorities? Your thoughts, 
The thing that you think nobody else knows, but God does, whose soul searches the secret recesses of your mind and your heart. Do they reflect? Are you diligent to actively take them captive for obedience to Christ? Your conflicts, your emotions, another way you could say this. What am I allowing myself to be upset over? What am I allowing myself to be fearful over? And I get sometimes it might feel like you don't have any control over these things. But as I've demonstrated before, have you ever been in an argument with somebody talking really heated and intense and then the phone rings? Hi. (laughs) Oh, hey, Pastor Bill, how's it going? (laughs) Suddenly, it seems like there's control, isn't there? Do my emotions reflect the priorities and values of the king and kingdom, or have I bought into a lie that I have no control over these things? Let me ask it this way. If Jesus walked up to you today and said, follow me, what would you have to leave off to do so? What would you have to leave off in order to do so faithfully? Well, he is calling you today to follow you, to follow him. He is calling you to forsake all for him. And I hope you hear this call and that you would repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we close the section from 23 to 25 as we read, as Maddie read, uh, we see the king's power. He goes throughout the region healing casting out demons. And and what Matthew's showing us is the the power of this in-breaking kingdom of God. The good news is that, and here's what Disney, what I referred to, they they get so well in in portraying. You, You see the curse being reversed. Think about that. All of creation lay under darkness and death and decay. People were possessed by demons. Sickness afflicted many. Many lived in pain and sorrow, waiting for God to answer. And now Jesus comes, the Son, and He's healing. He's casting out demons. The curse is being undone. Sins will be forgiven. What was made wrong is restored. The kingdom of God is at hand. The only proper response is to repent and believe. Beloved, a new age has dawned with the coming of the sun, and nothing will ever be the same. So I want to close with a call. Friend, if you're just joining us, if you've been exploring Christianity for maybe a while, I I hope today that you hear the invitation of Jesus to you. Follow him. Follow him. I hope you will take him as your Savior and King. He is a merciful King. He is kind to his people, and he will be merciful to you as well. And I promise you this, if you follow him, your life will never be the same again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful and powerful portrait of Jesus, the one who reverses the curse. I pray that today we would corporately hear this call to follow you. I pray you would help us to forsake all that distracts us and may instead we be driven to your mission to be heralds of this kingdom. And Father, may we in increasing measure experience in our souls and in our lives the transformative power of the gospel. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.